John chapter 21, we're going to read together the first 14 verses of this chapter. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts. John chapter 21, verse 1, after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And on this wise showed he himself. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two other of his disciples. Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a fishing. They say unto him, We also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Then Jesus saith unto them, Children, have ye any meat? They answered him, No. And he said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find they cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girt his fisher coat unto him, for he was naked, and did cast himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from land, but as it were, Two hundred cubits, dragging the net with fishes. As soon then as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid thereon, and bread. Jesus saith unto them, Bring of the fish which ye have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land, full of great fishes, an hundred and fifty and three. And for all there were so many, yet was not the net broken. Jesus saith unto them, Come and dine. And none of the disciples durst ask him, Who art thou? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then cometh and taketh bread and giveth them and fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples after that he was risen from the dead. We'll end our reading there. We trust the Lord will bless his word to us. For Jesus sake. This morning I want us to think particularly on verse 12. Where the Lord calls to his disciples. And tells them to come and dine. I want us to think about that for just a few moments. May the Lord bless us as we do. Before we go further let's just ask the Lord to take his word and use it in our hearts. Lord in heaven, we pray now that thou wouldst bless the word of God, that thou wouldst allow the spirit of God to be the preacher today, that he would be that one who takes the word and uses it and brings to pass that which is the will of God. We pray that you will now help every heart to hear, every ear to be open. I pray that you will help me as your servant, allow thoughts to be directed, Allow words to be framed 
in that way that is chosen of God for the hour and for the need of the hearts of all of us who are in this room. Lord, bless us then. Meet with us, we would pray. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. We come this morning to an account of the Lord's ministry to his disciples in those days after he had risen from the dead. In some ways, the moment is hard to imagine. Here's the reason that I say that. How would it strike the hearts of the disciples to see the Lord preparing food on coals for them? How would it strike the heart? The Lord had to start a fire. He had to get some fish. He asked them to bring some of theirs, but evidently he may have had some already. And he had bread. But beyond that, the Lord Jesus acted as a waiter to the disciples, dispensing food until all were satisfied. Now, we can imagine doing this for the Lord as we would want to serve him. But imagine him serving us in that way. That's sometimes a hard thing to kind of imagine. But the Lord does serve in that way. And that leads us to another question, and that is why? Why did the Lord Jesus do this particular thing in this particular moment for these men? What was he trying to teach? What was he saying? What was he about in that moment? Well, there is a well-known English uh, preacher of a century ago, a well-known tract writer and commentator named Um, John C. Ryle and he makes a comment about why he thought the Lord did this he says the object of this gracious invitation to come and dine seems to me to have been twofold it was meant partly to show our Lord's tender compassion for the weary bodies of his disciples though risen He knew and felt for their wants and would supply food for them when hungry and fatigued. But second, it was meant partly to show that though risen from the dead with a glorified body, he would be on the same loving terms of familiarity and kindness as before with his disciples. They need not be frightened at him. He had not forgotten them. He did not mean to keep them at a distance. He was still the one who would eat and drink with them as man eateth and drinketh with his friends. So you see the compassion of the Lord not only in supplying but also in reassuring who he was to these men. Here is a very loving and gentle moment. A moment of reclaiming his disciples as his own. And I might suggest to you that this is not unlike what all the redeemed will know. When we are brought finally into the presence of the Lord. How the Lord deals with these men. How he acts towards these men. The heart that he shows towards these men. What he provides for these men. Will be very similar to what we will know when we all stand in his presence. The gentleness 
the love, the giving of Christ. But we must also understand that the Lord meant to do something in the hearts of his disciples that day. He meant to supply for them, not just physically with food, but more so in their hearts. He meant to feed them in the inner man more than the outer man. Well, that would lead us to ask the question, in what way? I want to answer that. That's our direction for this morning. I want us to think on this truth and let it guide our minds as we go through our time. The Lord Jesus ministers to us by bringing us into his company and speaking to us and letting us find that which satisfies our hearts in him. So, I want us to think on this. I've got just a handful of things I want to say. First of which is this. What the Lord Jesus does that day is the remedy for extreme need. Here is the remedy for extreme need. Now, the disciples were on the sea. They were in their boats and doing what they had done for years. It would seem that they were safe and content in familiar waters. This was where they were used to being. Well, the truth of the matter is, if you read from other points in Scripture, the disciples were actually hiding for fear of the Jews. The Jews in Jerusalem would have been seeking to silence them. Now the question would be, would it be very long before the search for these followers of the one who it is said has risen from the dead would have expanded into Galilee? Especially since there was such a large synagogue in Capernaum, a synagogue that was filled with those who a short time ago had in rage sought to kill the Lord Jesus... Well, perhaps the danger was not so intense on the sea, at least in their minds. Perhaps what they were doing was sort of a refuge of sorts. Further, it might have seemed that the answer for the needs of their hearts lie in great industry. There's nothing like good, hard work to settle the mind and clear the thinking. You know, there's a lot of people who subscribe to that way of thinking. Get your mind on something else other than your need. Turn your attention to something that diverts you. That'll cause you to calm down. It'll clear your thinking. Nothing like good hard work to cause the body to be tired and the mind to be able to get a good rest when you finally lie down to sleep. There are people that think that way. Perhaps, on the other hand, the thinking of the moment was that going back to former ways, which were familiar, would be a good way to sort out the path ahead. Let's just go back to our old touchstones. Let's go back to the way we used to be. Let's go back to this old path and see if we can find our way forward, uh, having our minds uh, being put at rest by being in our familiar surroundings. Besides, it's good to provide for your family. I think that's why Simon says to his friends that day, I go a-fishing. And they say unto him, we also go with thee. Now there may 
have seemed to be good sound wisdom in that returning to the old ways, the turning of the attention to, to doing something. You know, there's a lot of people that would rather do something than wait. There's a lot of people that become very critical if you decide that you need to wait. No, no, no. What we need to do is we need to be busy. We've got to be doing, doing, doing. Perhaps that was in their mind. That they needed to do something rather than wait on the Lord. Especially since they did not know when they would meet him again. Well, I will say this. That the whole of the scene, the whole thing. If you take this whole picture. The fatigue to catch what they sought. The failure that came with a night of frustration and the seeming hesitation within their hearts at the sight of the Lord Jesus all go to prove that everything that they may have thought was wrong. Everything they thought was wrong. They were utterly dissatisfied and found themselves so with what they were doing. Their hearts were in a famine. Let's underscore that. Their hearts were in a famine and their minds were clouded with discouragement. And I will point out to you, there's only one remedy for that. The remedy didn't have anything to do with them. The remedy didn't have anything to do with their ability to do whatever it was they were doing. The remedy is this. The Lord Jesus comes to them and invites them to do the one thing that changes everything. He invites them to come to sit down and eat what he has prepared. Let me say, that's an outward vision. That's, a, that's an outward picture, but it is still the same. He tells them to come to sit down and eat what he has prepared. And I would suggest to you that our remedy is just the same. Though it may not be with fish and bread on coals by a, seashore, by a seashore. But what the Lord prepares for us as food for our souls. To come to Jesus and to sit down with the Lord and to eat what he has prepared. That's the way we find ourselves delivered from extreme need. And I say that's the truth of the moment. That's the lesson of this scene. The healing and the renewing of our souls comes from fellowship with the Lord. The psalmist says so in Psalm 16 verse 11 where he says, Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So my question to you this morning is this, do you hear the same invitation? What you need in your heart is to come to Jesus. You need to meet with him. You need to feed on what he offers in his word. You need his mercies. You need him to intervene and to minister you, to you as he did with them. That is the need for you, you to see the Lord remedying your situation. Well, that's my first thought. Here is the remedy for extreme need. But also I want you to see this. Here is the remedy for evident unbelief. Do you understand that unbelief 
is the ready go-to of fallen men. The fallen's reaction or the reaction of every man when confronted with a matter that requires faith in his fallen heart is unbelief. You're never going to see anything different than that. You tell a man or you bring to a man that which requires faith, if he's still in his fallen state, the only response he'll ever have is unbelief. Except he knows the help of the Holy Spirit. The effects of unbelief are numerous. Unbelief is not just a matter of doubt. It's something that goes far deeper and it has far more reaching ramifications than just doubt. I might ask this. Where does fear come from? Well, you take the example of the disciples in the boat on the stormy sea. They were afraid and they went to the Lord Jesus and asked him, Carest thou not that we perish? And what was his retort? O ye of little faith. It wasn't a matter of them being fearful because of something that was really going to happen. The reason that they were fearful is because they were filled with unbelief. Understand this. Fear is a product of unbelief. Where does complaint come from? You think of Israel in the desert. They complained. But why did they complain? Why did Israel grumble and mumble so much? Their answer was because they did not believe in the providence of God. It was a product of unbelief. Complaining in a whining heart is a product of your not trusting in the Lord. Further, where do accusations of God come from. You remember Naomi? When she goes into that land of Moab and she loses everything and when she comes back she tells her friends there in Bethlehem call me not Naomi anymore call me Mara because the Lord hath dealt bitterly with me. The Lord did something. He wasn't fair Where does accusation against God come from? It comes from unbelief. What about this? The defense of doing wrong. You ever heard somebody who defends himself when he does something wrong? And you say, this is not right. Well, I had, and I had, and then this, and here's why I did that, and because of all. And he starts trying to defend himself or justify himself for wrongdoing. Let me, by the way, say this. You're going to hear a lot of that between now and November. The justification of wrongdoing. Where does that come from? Well, let me ask this. When Saul was told to go out and deal with the enemies of the Lord, and he doesn't do what he's told, and then Samuel comes to him and says, Wait a minute, Saul. Why do I hear all this bleeding of the sheep? And the lowing of the cattle. The Lord told you to go out and destroy all. And he said, well, you know, the people. Uh, the people were uh, hard to get along with. And I, I really, they were going to rise up. We were going to have mutiny or something of that sort. So they wanted, so I let them take the cattle. And, and, and by the way, the king that you see over here that I did not slay. Well, I was going to uh, deal with him in an open show in another way. And, and by the way, the cattle that we got, the thought just popped into my head. He says, uh, the, the cattle and the things we, we can, we're going to sacrifice. And Samuel says, 
This rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft. To hearken is better than the fat of rams. It's better to obey than to sacrifice. Saul, you were filled with unbelief. And your own belief now leads you to try to justify yourself for wrongdoing. Understand that is where that comes from. Some perhaps would say, well, even doing uh, the lack of doing what is a needed work comes from unbelief. The Lord tells us to go out and do certain things or be certain things or act a certain way. And we don't do it. Why? Well, we don't believe. No, there's not a real need for that. There's not a. You know, if we do it or don't do it, there's no big difference. It's unbelief. Christ saw this heart of unbelief in the men out there on the water. And he brings the remedy. Now, I want you to think carefully with me here. What is or what was the remedy for unbelief? The remedy was this. Christ speaks. Christ calls. I want you to understand that the remedy for unbelief is never, never for the struggler to try to change himself. When you are told to believe, it's not something that you're going to find that you're able to do by just working up something that is lacking in yourself. And then you're made right as a result. Oh, let me tell you what. Man-centered theology absolutely makes no sense. Not only is it wrong, it doesn't make any sense. You're being told to do what you're not able to do. Well, save yourself. How, how do I say Well, you believe and then see you save yourself. You, walk in grace. Well, how you, well you, you, you do something and so by your doing, you're walking. No, it just doesn't make any sense. The answer to unbelief is always that there is a speaking of the Lord to the heart. Let me give you a couple of examples. Do you remember when the Lord Jesus rose from the dead and he's in the garden and Mary comes and she's all fretted and she's worried because now she can't find the Lord and the Lord comes to her and in the moment of her unbelief, he puts it all away by saying one thing. Mary. Then she realizes it's the Lord. And she's able to go back and tell the others, the Lord has risen and I have seen him. The Lord spoke to her. Understand, unbelief is put away by the Lord speaking. Let me give you another example. Remember when Thomas says, I will not believe unless I see him and I'm able to put my fingers into the nail prints of his hands. The Lord Jesus comes and he deals with Thomas's unbelief by saying, reach hither. Reach hither your fingers. Yes, you want to put them in the, my, the nail prints? Reach hither. You know, the father of the demoniac, who the, the disciples had no success with, came to the Lord and he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. In other words, he's saying, I'm still struggling with unbelief. And the Lord Jesus heals that, such, that uh, situation by simply saying, bring him hither to me. <laughs> Do you understand that unbelief is always dealt with and put away by the Lord speaking to us? So I say, 
That simple fact is proof that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Here is proof that you need the word of God. For it is the word of God taken up the Holy Spirit and used to speak to you that kills unbelief. Or as Paul says, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Where, and this is, a, this is a plain truth. Where there is no word, there is no faith. Where there is no speaking of the voice of Christ, whether it's through the Spirit taking the word of God or whether it was like it was that day. Where there is no speaking of Christ, unbelief will remain. And let me tell you, let me tell you this. The devil knows that well. And that's why you're seeing so many attacks on the word of God. Why they are so strong. Why men are offering other... Here, here's a new... You know, it seems like every week, here's another edition or another translation. Here's another example of what we think will make men understand better. And most of it's a, a changing of the word entirely. Or men defying the word. Denying the word. The church getting away from preaching and learning and memorizing the word. The word of God is that which is used of Christ to speak to our hearts to put away unbelief. It is vital. The Lord calls to the needy and to the weary. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. He bids them come to him. These men, he says, come, come, come and dine. And when they do, he feeds them. He feeds them for they were not ready or able to feed themselves. And then he deals particularly with the needs of the souls of these men, specifically Peter. Peter had a real need. The Lord came to him. The Lord spoke to him. The Lord addressed him. Here is the, the remedy for evident unbelief. Third, here is the remedy for empty hearts. Here is the remedy for empty hearts. The issue that is now in view is the hungry and empty heart that finds no satisfaction by what is seen around. Now mark it down. There is and can never be such a thing as happy and a fulfilled life where the Lord Jesus is not the center. There is no such thing. You can try to fill up your life with satisfaction with things, and many people do. Or exciting events or experiences, and many people do. But you will find that ultimately it will come to nothing. The man who tries to fill up his life with things will find out that, well, that was good for about ten minutes. Now I have to go out and find something else that takes my attention and makes me... In fact, there's another way that sometimes people like to fill up their life. They try to recapture the satisfaction that you imagine you had in a bygone day or place. If only I can get back to the way it was when, you know, when I was, 
And, and boy, that was a great time of my life. And if only if I can get back there, I would be happy and fulfilled again and so on and so forth. But it won't work. It won't work. One thing I remember my own mom saying to me as we were reminiscing about the town I grew I grew up in a town and lived all my childhood days. And, and I, before I went to college, I was in the same place among the same people. It was hometown to me. And we were reminiscing, and I remember my mom just simply looking at me once uh, and saying, you can never go back. I said, well, wait a minute. It's still there. I mean, the town's still there, but not, that, that wasn't the point. The point was... What you think you had when you were back, whatever it was, you can't go back to that. It's not there. Some people try to fill up their lives by saying, if only I can get to this other state of being or this place. No, you'll never make it. Peter and the others returned to what they had known. If only we can get back out on the boats and fish for a while. Maybe with things will... No, you can't go back. Peter, do you understand? You are spoiled to fishing. The Lord hasn't quite brought me to that point. I still can go fishing and enjoy it all. But Peter was spoiled to fishing. Going out on the boats as he used to do, doing what he, he couldn't do that anymore. It was his, his, his life had met with Jesus. He can't do that anymore and have a fulfillment. These men were doing what, they, what was the habit of life. And they imagined that if they could get back to that, perhaps maybe there would be a, a peaceful day. Do you understand that remembrances that you may have are rarely accurate? The things that you think about in the past are rarely accurate. I could probably say, well, my, my reminiscences about the town I grew up, they're probably, I don't remember all the other things that made me wish, boy, I wish I could get out of here. Our reminiscences are rarely accurate. Why? Because we remember with emotion. We rarely remember with pure recall. And Peter was finding that he was empty. And the return to the old was no help at all. So Jesus comes to him and says, come and dine. Or rather, Peter, come and be filled. You're finding the whole thing an empty experience to you. Come and be filled. In other words, that which is satisfying is what is prepared of the Lord. And then is ministered by the Lord. And then is attended by the Lord. There are some scriptures that would suggest that to us. First John chapter 1, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with the other. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. Or as Paul says, oh, that I may know him and the fellowship of his sufferings. Peter himself, in a final address to those that he writes to in his epistles, says, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of, the Lord and, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What is satisfying is what Christ prepares. It is what Christ ministers to us 
and it is what Christ attends with his presence. When you have those things, that is what fulfills life. You can list all the other things or events or what you might try to get to in your life. It won't work. It won't fulfill you. The only one that does is the Lord Jesus. And so he invites Peter, come and be fulfilled. Come and dine. Number four. Here is the remedy for enervating weakness. Enervating. E-N-E-R-V-A-T-I-N-G. How many have used that word in the last week? How many have used that word ever? Probably not. Well, you say, well, what's it mean? Well, simply this. Enervating means to sap away mental strength. That is a weakness that you have. It's not just physical weakness, but it's a weakness that takes your ability to think right away. You are growing weak and you're not thinking straight. It enervates uh, you. It takes away your ability to see and perceive and then calculate what needs to be done. In fact, or you might say it this way, you become so weak by what you're experiencing that you're weakened to the point that you have trouble thinking right. Which, by the way, the point is, never make life-changing decisions when you are in such a condition. <laughs> Peter, perhaps, was doing some, uh, some of that. A man that is overrun with unbelief is not a man who is thinking right. He sees things either out of doubt, or he'll see things out of bitterness, or he'll see things out of selfish desire, but he's not thinking right. Just to put it to you very bluntly, the disciples in the boats that day were not doing real well. They were not in the place where they could ever be useful. A man who is weakened by his unbelief, by his own insistence of going his own way, will be the man that cannot think right, and a man who cannot think right is a man who will not stand in persecution. I'll give you an example. Do you remember what David said when he was being chased by Saul? He grew weary in his heart, and he came to the conclusion, I shall one day perish by the hand of this man. Was he right? No. The Lord proved it to him over and over and over again. But he was still concluding, I'm going to perish by the hand of Saul one day. And so he makes a decision. I'll know, I know what I'll do. I'll go and live with the Philistines. Now, you'd have to say, how smart was that? Well, it wasn't very because he found himself having to lie every day. Not little lies, whopper lies. Is that right? Was that good? A man who is filled with unbelief will be a man who cannot stand to persecution. You'll find that men are, that are filled with that type of mindset also cannot go forward in the things that they know that they are being told to do. You think about Israel in the desert. They concluded that they would die in the desert. Were they thinking right? Well, for some of them, because of their rebellion... The Lord had to judge them, and it wasn't because the Lord was not going to provide for them that they were going to die. It's because they were rebellious, and the Lord opened the earth and swallowed some of them up. Or some of them were bitten by snakes. Or some of them had other things, a plague that came upon them. Or they had, um, they were eating quail and found out, oops, guess what? This quail will kill you. 
and some of them died from that. But it was judgment. It wasn't necessarily that the Lord was bringing them out there and the Lord couldn't deliver them. They did not believe that the Lord would provide in the way that he said. And so they started thinking wrong. You know what? It's better for us, they said. If we go back to Egypt. Now you think about this. What was their life in Egypt? What kind of life did they have in Egypt? I mean, was it parades and parties all the time? I mean, what was their life in Egypt? They said, well, it's better, let's, let's go back there. Better than what? Being able to be free from the Egyptian bondage and be able to have your bread provided for you every day? Which one is better here? They were not thinking right. But a man who is filled with selfish unbelief is not going to think right. And further, a man in this kind of a situation can't resist temptation. You think about Jacob. Jacob was going to receive the blessing of God the covenant was his, as we read this morning. The covenant of Jacob was a firm covenant in the mind of God. But Jacob says, you know what? I better move quick here because if I don't go out and deceive my father by putting goat's hair on my arms and around the back of my neck and wearing my brother's garment, then my brother will end up with the blessing that God intends for me. So I'm going to go in there and I'm going to lie and I'm going to deceive and I'm going to pretend I'm not, or I'm going to pretend who I am not. I'm simply mentioning to you that when you fall into unbelief, as the disciples were, it is enervating. It makes you not think squarely and rightly. Well, how does a man get out of that? The remedy is to meet with the Lord Jesus. To sit with him, to feed on what he offers, to come and dine. And he will straighten out the mind. Without his feeding us, it will always be to fish all night and catch nothing. What do you feed on? When the Lord said, I, I, when I'm talking about the Lord feeding you, what is it that the Lord feeds you on? Well, one thing I think that the disciples fed on before they even took the first morsel of bread into their mouth was that they were feeding on the love of the Lord Jesus. They were able to come into that place and sit down and they could see the face of a loving Lord let me tell you what, there is nothing that will invigorate you um, mentally, which I say is the opposite of enervating you. There is nothing more that will invigorate you mentally and spiritually than contemplating and knowing and realizing that Jesus loves you. That's something you can feed on. Also, we can feed on the gift of his righteousness. We read that in Second uh, Corinthians this morning. <coughs> In fact, if you read uh, your McShane for this morning, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, it talks about the Lord's gift of righteousness. It's a gift to us to know that all is well with God. Oh, that's a wonderful thing to have your mind and heart know. When I'm right with God, it's a gift. It's like the Lord Jesus feeding me sweet things. He's putting a table out there. I mean, this is wonderful. I know I am, I am right with God. All things are well. That's a gift. And the graces, the graces of God to know when to do. The Lord Jesus allows us to feed on these things. Well, I've got one more thing and I'm done. I want you to see that when the Lord Jesus came to these men and called them to come and dine, 
that that act, that which he was doing for them, was the remedy for every sorrow. It is the, the remedy for every sorrow. You know, Peter was a man that you'd have to say, though he was saying, I'm going to go fishing, and he put on a brave face, there was a lot in his heart that he was sorrowing over. There was a lot of regret that he had that was in his heart. He had failed the Lord. He had lied about the Lord. You know, it's one thing to lie about yourself. Something else, perhaps, to lie about the Lord. Peter was filled with sorrow. The question would be, what could set that right? What could heal the broken heart? Well, you take that in a general sense. Whatever can, what is it in this world that can ever heal a broken heart? Well, the answer is to sit with Jesus. And to feed on what he held out. That is what you saw on the shore that day. Particularly with Peter. The Lord healed. And I say this is what we find too. So my last question, my last thought to you is this. The Lord Jesus ministers to us. As we said before by bringing us into his company. By speaking to us and letting us find that which satisfies our heart in him. Second Corinthians chapter 9 verse 15 says, Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. What is the unspeakable gift that Paul is talking about there? Or should I put it this way? Who is the unspeakable gift that Paul is talking about there? It is the Lord Jesus. He is the gift of God to us that puts all things not only right, but in the place where we can find satisfying fulfillment of heart. This is not only true for a half dozen men there on the Sea of Galilee. It's true for you this morning. You'll come to the Lord Jesus. The same invitation to you is the invitation that was uttered to them. Come and dine. Come and be filled. Come and find satisfaction. Come to me. I will give you rest. All ye that labor and are heavy laden, even though you fished all night, well, may the Lord bless his word to our hearts for Jesus' sake. Let's pray. Father in heaven, now we would pray that you will bless the word of God. We pray that you will allow us to hear and learn the lesson that for us what satisfies is Christ. And when we hear and heed and come and partake of what you prepare for us, of your grace and your mercies and your love, we will find that that is a remedy for all the ills that we have. Lord, bless now the word. Apply it to every heart. Allow each to know the voice of the Lord Jesus drawing and speaking, doing the work that needs to be done. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake.
Amen. Thank you.